You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. How many threads connect us to iconic figures in fact and fiction? I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope. We come out of the darkness, we come into the light, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this episode, Timothy Christian, the author of Hemingway's Widow, stops by. And after the break from Newsday, Thomas Mayer tells us about The Godfather, the Long Island Connection, 50 years later, a look back. So, Tim, welcome so much to the program. This book has been praised. Uh, Let me just share what I came across, because I think this is really important, especially for the person who, who rendered this quote. And what he said about your book, Hemingway's Widow on life and legacy of Mary Welsh Hemingway, illuminating, I cannot imagine any biographer navigating the waters better than Tim Christian has done in these pages. And the reason why I came to this, because this quote comes from H.R. Steinbeck. And it's, it's, I guess he may be the gold standard in terms of Hemingway uh, books and knowledge. Is that true or I'm missing the point? No, I think that uh, Stoney Stoneback was... Uh clearly a preeminent uh, Hemingway scholar. He was president of the society for, of the Hemingway Society for a term. Uh, And uh, regrettably, Larry, uh, Stoney died uh, on December 22nd uh, this year. Uh, And uh, it was a tremendous loss uh, for, obviously for the Hemingway world, but for me personally, because I've become a very close friend of Stoney. What I'd like to do is just give a little bit of your background to my listeners, because this is quite impressive. You graduated as a Commonwealth scholar from King's College in Cambridge. Congratulations. During a very legal career, you served as a law professor and dean at the Faculty of Law at the University of Alberta. So how is a person steeped in the law decide to take on the challenge? And I say advisedly, the challenge and the time commitment to create this book, Hemingway's Widow. Why did you do this? Well, you know, I, uh, I, I read all of Hemingway during the time that I was uh, involved in law. Uh, I was always interested in him and, in, and particularly the, the link between his life and his literature. Uh, and I decided I wanted to write. I've, I've always written short stories and uh, journaled and so on. And I, uh, I had a very uh, fantastic uh, law career. I loved it. I loved the people, but I was traveling too much and I, I wanted to write. So I decided to change gears. Uh, I wrote a couple of uh, uh, stories to begin with, and I, I began working and decided that uh, after I'd read uh, Mary's uh uh, memoir, how it was, uh, that I wanted to write about her. Uh, her book captured me with its sparkling account of her life before and after she met Ernest. Uh, and I decided that after doing some research, the story must be told as a true story because for one thing, truth is stranger than fiction. And secondly, I wanted readers to to appreciate that I was trying to tell uh, the true story. And it, 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 this is not a fictional account uh, because I just found so much interesting information about her that I thought that uh, readers ought to be acquainted with the with the real Mary. Uh, she had been uh, poorly treated, I think, um, in the past. Um, 
she had been dismissed for uh, writing a self-serving autobiography for lacking self-awareness. Uh, she was said to live merely on the surface, incapable of deeper analysis. She was scorned as the lowest born of the four wives and criticized for a failure to analyze Ernest. And she was dismissed as a mere caretaker wife. And Martha Gellhorn went so far as to call her a maggot of history. Yeah, I read that in the book. I yeah. recently watched, I think it was on PBS, Ken Burns' documentary about Ernest Hemingway. So... I was captured right there. We all know, we think we know about the man, we wonder about the myth, and I want you to expand on that if you can. So when we get access to your book, it became so important to me because it kind of broadened the whole scope of his life and her life. And I think you did a great service to her, but she's also been kind of controversial over the years. She, um, we'll delve into that, but kind of amplify what I'm kind of raising right now. Well, I think that uh, when you see Ernest through Mary's eyes, uh, you see quite a different person, um, certainly a different person than I was aware of when I first started. Um, they had a, a great uh, romantic uh, relationship. Uh, I think that Mary loved him deeply uh, and appreciated his sense of humor, his uh, his uh, joy, uh, his ability to bring joy to other people. Um, and uh, she felt that her story uh, uh, ought to be told, that their love story ought to be told. Of course, it's a very controversial love story because and some people have said it's a, the most transactional relationship they've ever seen. Um, there was a lot of give and take and Ernest uh, was often quite awful to her. Uh, and uh, she uh, threatened to leave him a number of times. Right. Uh, she wrote letters describing his misconduct, and he did some really quite terrible things to her. But she stayed, I think, mainly because she loved him and she knew that she was essential to his, uh, to his uh, intellectual life, uh, to his writing. Uh, and uh, frankly, uh, I think one of the things that kept them together was um, a, a very happy sexual life. And you get into great detail in the book. We'll touch upon that. But is there is their relationship the classic definition of codependency? They each needed the other. And even though they would admit it to themselves or even to people close to them, that's one of my biggest takeaways from the book. They were codependent on each other in a sense I don't know. It's, I don't know. If I can say looking for a safe harbor, but they were both looking for something in the other person. Yes, I think they were. I think that's a very good observation, and I think that what Ernest uh, found in Mary uh, was someone who understood that thing in his head, as he called his creative power. Uh, his psychiatrist said that to Mary as well, uh, and he needed her to. Uh, to work, uh, not just to keep things organized for him, but because she uh, typed his work, was the first reader, she suggested revisions, she corrected spelling and grammar, uh, and she uh, she was integral to the creative output. So he needed, I think he needed her for that. Here's a fascinating question on my part, because Maxwell Perkins is in this book. 
the great editor, Maxwell Perkins, I believe, yes. from, from Scribner. And it's still a controversy who wrote The Great Gatsby before, and originally it was called Trimetio. And I'm going to pose the question to you, because it's, it's in the book, how much of Hemingway's books did Mary actually write in conjunction with his editors? I think that she was uh, vital to the process. And uh, the best, there are two examples. One is that she didn't get enough involved, involved in uh, Across the River and Into the Trees. Okay. Uh, she had real doubts about that book. She, she thought the dialogue was, uh, uh, was silly. Uh, she thought the plotting was not well done. She thought it was a terrible mistake to base the character Renata on, on Adriana. Uh, but she decided not to get too involved in it. On the other hand, in Old Man and the Sea, she was very involved. Uh, she read that book every night, uh, as far as Ernest was able to manage to get to in a day. She'd read it, she'd read it from the beginning, type it from the beginning. She made uh, various suggestions for changes. But the most important thing she did, I think, was to persuade Ernest that the old man, Santiago, ought to survive. Right. Uh, Ernest writes to her uh, while she's away, saying he needs her to get back. He needs her to, to watch. He needs to watch her reading the book. Um, and uh, when she returns, uh, she um, reads it every night again. And she's, she's afraid that Santiago is going to be killed. She, she's afraid that Ernest is going to, uh, to kill him off because that's the easiest way to end the book. But she pleads uh, for Santiago to survive. Uh, she told him that um, she didn't pretend to be a writer. She said, you, you're the house writer, Lamb. Uh, but it seems too easy to kill him off, too facile. And nothing in this book so far reads facile or tricky. And Ernest was pleased that she liked him and she was happy a few days later to find that he had survived. I find that a very interesting uh, collaboration uh, because, you know, many people have made a lot of the uh, sort of Christian allegory of uh, the old man in the sea and they describe Santiago as a sort of Christ-like figure and they see a lot of um, symbolism uh, which uh, which makes it uh, seem like a Christian allegory. But, you know, the fact is that it was uh, camel-smoking, uh, gin-drinking Mary who <laughs> saved, saved Santiago because she liked him, not because Ernest was trying to perfect a Christian allegory. If you're just joining us, this is the podcast, Awful Periscope. I'm the host, Larry Davidson. My guest is a terrific writer of Hemingway's Widow, The Life and Legacy of Mary Welsh Hemingway. Tim Christian. I shorten your first name, Timothy, if you don't mind, for conversation's sake. No, that's, that's perfectly acceptable. In fact, only my mother calls me Timothy. Yeah, my mother was mad at me. She used to call me Lawrence, and it's the only time I, I would ever hear that name, Lawrence. So I totally relate to the fact that when you hear your given name coming from a parent, you're probably in trouble. You did something wrong. But you did a lot right with this book. And I want to touch upon the war years of World War II. They were both... Yes journalist. In fact, she was a very well-respected journalist. You mentioned the other wives and how, what their role was. What was lost in the whole conversation, which you bring out in the book, she was a terrific journalist covering World War II. But what captured my attention, her approach to journalism during the war, 
and Ernest Hemingway's approach to German journalism in the war, especially was boots on the ground in a sense when he was in Germany. And I think you know where I'm going, but you can take it from here. He kind of brought in his skill as a writer and embellishing what his role was. Am I correct in kind of raising that question? I think you are. I mean, I think that if you compare Mary and Ernest, it's interesting because Mary uh, was a hard-headed journalist. She uh, she worked her way ahead in journalism, and she worked every day. She wrote stories for the Daily uh, Express in London under her byline, and she uh, she covered interesting stories, and she was sort of in favor of the underdog. And uh, when you read her stories, you see her championing uh, these people who are uh, sort of victims of the of the coming war right. against Germany. Uh, and uh, in each of her stories, she she manages to bring in a human element that that makes it resonate so you remember the stories you remember the remember the story of the bum who uh, uh, found a five pound note and turned it into the police the police then were going to offer he found it they offered him a job he didn't want a job he wanted to go back on the road that's a sort of Mary story she would find these interesting human characters uh, and bring them to life in her in her short pieces right. and it, it, she's really a terrific writer now Ernest on the other hand, Ernest was a, a fiction writer, uh, and I think that uh, I think part of the magic of him was that he could look at a scene and uh, remember it a, a long time later, write it in a way that transformed it uh, into something extraordinarily interesting. Uh, but it wasn't really hard-headed or fact-based journalism in the way that Mary practiced it. Uh, and uh, one of the one of the really interesting discoveries, I think, is the is the view of uh, General Bucklanum or Colonel Bucklanum, as he then was. As you know, Ernest was embedded with uh, Buck's uh, regiment in the fight through Germany. Uh, and Buck later had a chance to look at the letters that uh, and the and the articles which uh, Ernest wrote, and. Uh, he told Carlos Baker, the, the ultimate official biographer of Hemingway, right, right. that uh, Ernest just wrote a pile of crap to Mary in those days, that, and he couldn't understand this chest beating. And why was Hemingway bragging in this way? Why was he, why was he distorting his role? And if you read Hemingway's uh, accounts, uh, his, his journalistic accounts, uh, he he centers himself in every really every battle. It's always Hemingway's playing actually quite a critical role in the outcome of the battle. I mean, one of the most interesting examples is the uh, the Normandy invasion. When uh, Hemingway's on a, uh, a landing craft, they're making their way to the beach. The, the captain of the landing craft loses his map overboard. But Hemingway has memorized the map, and right. so he's able to but identify the landmarks and guide the landing graph to the right beach. It's, you know, possibly that happened, but it, it happens over and over again in his Collier's pieces. He's always in the center. He's, it's always, oh, Hemingway is just seeing this incredible historic event. When you, you, know, you doubt whether he was really there or, or that it happened in that way. And, and Buck Lanham says it, it, 
you know, it's just all made up. It's not true. His, he was never even at the, uh, the Battle of the Siegfried Line, for example, even though it, if you read his account, it sounds like he's right there dodging bullets. Now, people can't see us. We're on Zoom, but it'll only be audio version when it's finished. But I'm smiling because you said the word that's kind of stuck in my brain. And not many things really stick, but that's the word embedded. But you want to talk a little bit about, you said she was very sexual. Her relationship during the war years in London with Erwin Shaw, who she said, in case I'm missing, misreading the book, best sex she ever had was with with Erwin Shaw. Is that correct? That's correct. Well, she said that she said to Bill Walton uh, that he was the best lay in Europe. Uh, And, you know, Erwin Shaw was 14 years younger than Ernest, uh, muscular, good looking guy. I mean, he was very manly and um, uh, he he was, uh, uh, I I think, very attractive to her and indeed uh, i think she would have preferred to marry him over ernest but he was not prepared to give up his wife he went back to his wife but they had a very hot uh hot uh, relationship which ernest knew about and ernest was jealous of uh and we uh, we see we see that in a number of occasions. I don't know if you have time to watch many movies, but one of the movies that I liked from Woody Allen, I liked a bunch of them, no matter what people think of them these days, was Zelig. And this book, in my mind, is Zelig in the real world because all the people, the multitude of people that Mary interacted with Ernest interacted with, and all the names I kind of recognize throughout history in your rendering of writing this book, there's one person I do know, or did know, Pete Hamill. Pete Hamill's my all-time favorite, the most generous man I ever met. His IQ is about a thousand places above mine, but I always remember him coming into my TV studio multiple times And before the recording of the interview and after, he spoke to everybody on the crew and gave them as much time as they ever wanted. This man was so gifted and so generous. I just had to throw it out there because there's one mention of Pete Hamill in the book referencing, I I guess, the biography that Hockner wrote, A.E. Hockner, which he disagreed with. But that's also an important person in the book. But I just had to put it out there because all these names, all these things you write about are so fascinating. But I did have a chance to sit down with one person in the book, and that was Pete. So thank you very much for the Pete Hamill mention. That is interesting. That is very interesting. You know, the, I, I loved the period. That's one of the reasons I, I was drawn to it. I, I just loved those people and the lives that they led. Uh, and seeing how they interacted with each other is fascinating. Uh, you mentioned A.E. Hotchner, what an amazing guy he was and what, a, what an important role he plays uh, in the book. You got, a, you got a dog in the background. What kind of dog is that? That's, that's, I apologize. That's my Boston Terrier. Oh, please don't. I can tell you how many uh, podcasts we've done when we were off-site because of COVID, and you see the cats <laughs> on people's shoulders and the animals coming in and out of the shot. So uh, thank you very much because I love the fact that your dog is part now of this podcast. So I thank you again. <laughs> His name is Sydney. All right. So there's so many places I can go, but I want to go to the – Cuba ear, ears, because the time they spent there, how, how is it pronounced? Finca is that how it's pronounced? 
The Finca, the Finca Vigia. Yeah, okay, so that is so interesting. Once again, talking about all the Zelig moments, their interactions with everybody came through there over the years, Castro, family members, um, people that, uh, another person whose life who was kind of, he was involved with much younger than him. Josephine, was that the one? Uh, Adriana. Adriana, thank you very much, Adriana. So let's kind of flesh that whole thing out because Cuba is still a very mystical and magical place even to this day. And his years there were special to both of them as well of all the people that came in and out of that time frame when they were in Cuba. Well, uh, Ernest uh, moved to Cuba because he found that it was a, a a place where he could work. He wasn't famous there. Uh, he wasn't harassed by the press. Uh, and uh, he went there first with and Martha came soon after Martha Gellhorn came soon after and Martha uh, didn't like staying in Havana. And as a result, uh, Ernest bought the, uh, the Finca Vigia, the lookout farm, uh, which is a uh, you know, it's a, it's not a, a ostentatious place. It's uh, very nice, uh, but not uh, not fancy particularly. Uh, and so he uh, lived there uh, and lived with Mary there for seventeen years. Uh, and it's a, a magnificent center for his productive for his uh, creative life. Uh, and uh, of course, he was able to write in the early morning, uh, standing before his uh, bookcase. Uh, Mary uh, constructed a, a tower where he could get escape uh, to get away from visitors. Uh, uh, Pilar, his beloved boat, was close by, uh, and they could get away uh, on the uh, lovely uh, water and, and cruise to a place they uh, called Paradiso, right, uh, right. which uh, they would swim in this beautiful water, fish. Uh, they would eat lovely meals on the boat, uh, and people would come and visit them. So really, everyone came came through. Uh, Eva Gardner apparently, uh, Eva Gardner, sorry, uh, apparently swam nude in the pool at the Finca, uh, and uh, really, all of the significant players in Hemingway's life came there. Max Perkins came to fish. fish. Uh, Charlie Scribner came to fish. Uh, Buck Lanham and his wife visited. Um, it was a, a, a marvelous uh, place, and it still is to this day. I, I've had the uh, opportunity to visit it, uh, and it is a, a magnificent place. It was very important to him. Uh, he had a very large library there, and when uh, after the uh, Fidel uh, Castro uh, revolution, he had, to, he had to give it up, and it was a, a huge loss, I think. So we all know about what happened with the Bay of Pigs and JFK. There's another part of the book that's really, really interesting. And I'm kind of jumping around, so you can kind of pull me back if you like, if I'm going no, off on a, a side road. She's at, she's at a White House dinner sitting next to JFK. And, of course, she had known Joe Kennedy Sr., because I think she interviewed and interacted with him during the London years when he was there yes. during the war. Yes. And she's talking to Kennedy and kind of saying, what's the story with Bay of Pigs? And these people are really nice. And what did you do? And he has to listen to her. And she's, I don't know if it's a diatribe, but as soon as she finished speaking, he turns away from her and starts speaking to the per person next to him. And I think you captured that so well about the interconnections 
uh, people throughout history, Kennedy Sr., JFK, besides Ernest Hemingway and everybody else, and I really just sat back and thought about that scene. If I was a fly in the wall, I would have loved to have been there in that time frame of history. Yes, that was a very memorable evening. It was a dinner for Nobel Prize winners. And uh, Kennedy, I think I, Kennedy was very uh, nice to Mary. Uh, he, he greatly admired Ernest, and I think that must be the reason. So Kennedy sat between uh, Mary and Mrs. Marshall, the wife of George Marshall. Mary had decided that this would be an opportunity to raise with Kennedy her concerns about American policy with respect to, to, to Cuba. She was strongly opposed to it. She believed that Eisenhower ought to have visited uh, Cuba, that they could have kept it within the American orbit, uh, and that they simply made terrible mistakes. And she, so she just laid into him. And, you know, she was a very brave person who was used to dealing with strong military leaders. She knew Eisenhower. Uh, she knew Churchill. Uh, she had talked to all of these people. And uh, she just uh, laid out for Kennedy uh, what she thought he ought to have done. He found it outrageous. <laughs> he was perplexed. He later told Bill Walton that he'd never received such uh, foreign policy advice in his life at that matter, that Mrs. Kennedy, uh, Mrs. Hemingway just kept talking at him. And if he hadn't had uh, the other lady sitting next to him, uh, he would have had a terrible, miserable evening. He was able to turn to Mrs. Marshall and escape from Mrs. Hemingway. Um, it's pretty clear that uh, Kennedy was uh, very upset by what she said, and uh, Mary, Mary didn't know, and in fact, none of us would have known at that time that Kennedy had really basically blown the Bay of Pigs operation by failing to provide adequate air cover. Uh, so it must have, must have been terrible to him to have this woman who had successfully negotiated with Castro herself proposing to him that he might want to send her into Cuba to talk to Castro on behalf of the U.S. She couldn't possibly have known how unwelcome that was. But it didn't, she she was also somewhat, uh, you might say, insensitive because right. she just she just plowed ahead. I, I don't want to get too personal because this is not about me, but I've known four people who have committed suicide. Hmm. And one of my previous guests is Jennifer Murphy, who wrote a book about her experience about EMT during a lot of time in being in COVID era. And it's also published by Pegasus Books Like You Are. And she had to take a class and the instructor said, and this, I still think about this. Uh, people who are thinking about suicide don't really want to die. They just don't want the life they are living. Mm. And obviously, Hemingway was in a hospital. I think the second time he was put in the hospital dealing with his deep depression and suicidal thoughts. And he was discharged the second time. And shortly after, he killed himself. Ironically, with a shotgun he bought many years ago in Italy was the same shot double barrel shotgun that he ended his life with. Why did Mary cover this up and come up with an alternative explanation? I think she was trying to uh, save him from the stigma of suicide. Uh, in, in those years, the 1960s, uh, suicide was not as well understood as it is now. And there was a definite stigma attached to it. And I, I think that she felt that um, that was private business and that it was no one's business. 
Um, she herself said uh, later that she, perhaps she was just unable to come to terms with it and she therefore um, d denied it. But I think it's much deeper than that. I think she knew very well what, it, what had happened and she decided that um, she would um, tell the world and, and, she, and she did maintain in public that he had uh, died by accident when he was simply examining the gun. Um, she maintained that position for five years and only uh, changed her position after she lost an injunction application brought against A.E. Hodgner, who was about to publish uh, Papa Hemingway, which disclosed for the first time um, Ernest's mental decline and suicide. Uh, she tried to prevent publication of that book. She didn't get the injunction, and about a week later, she gave an extensive interview to Oriana Falacci, the Italian journalist, right. and described to her exactly what had happened. I, I think that uh, she did it because she thought that it would damage his reputation if people thought that Papa Hemingway had, had taken his own life. My guest, once again, is the author of Hemingway's Widow, The Life and Legacy of Mary Welsh. Hemingway, Timothy, Christian. We always end every segment. What did I get wrong? What did I miss? So, Tim, what did I get wrong? What did I miss? No, I think you got it right. I, I don't think you got anything wrong. And um, I'm very happy to have had this opportunity to chat with you about it. I, what, I'm glad you've... You've obviously read the book, and it's very nice to talk to somebody who has and to go into some of those points that you raised. I don't think you really left out anything. Thank you very much. So the last question I'll ask you is, um, where does the validation come from as a writer? It's a solitary process. Hemingway understood that. Mary understood that. You're sitting and talking to me, but you, I imagine you dedicated a lot of time by yourself researching this book so for you besides and i know you're doing interviews and i'm thankful for that because i want people to read this book watch the, the ken burns thing it's really interesting but you take a different approach i think it's important to get this book out there but as a writer where does the validation come from i think it comes from uh, well first of all the work itself i found very rewarding i uh, there was a the joy of discovery. You know, I, I found a lot of things that I didn't know about, and I, f I found it just that itself was uh, was quite great. The uh, the opportunity to write it was um, you know it was difficult, but it was also rewarding uh, w when I finally felt that I had it more or less in order. Uh, but then, what is really truly gratifying is when people read it and. Um, and react to it. And I now, uh, you know, I'm aware of people de having debates about the book. Okay. Like, should Mary have left him? Why didn't she leave him? Uh, you know, all of the, these these things that are, they, they, they just accept uh, that the story, as I've told it, is true. And they get engaged in the, they get engaged in it. And they, and they're, you know, the Kennedy, uh, why did she do that? I mean, why, why would she lip off the president? Why would she, why was it so important to her to, to speak to Kennedy in that way? Or how did she really deal with Castro? Um, why was it that Castro deferred to her? Why did Castro basically break a, a small Cuban law to allow her to take her paint, oil paintings back to America? People are sort of engaged in the in the in their lives in Mary's life and uh, relitigating, uh, you know, the the, the arguments and uh, uh, the debates. And I find that. I, f I find that quite gratifying because 
I'm glad that people care about it. They they seem to buy into Mary, and they they may not like her, but they believe she's real, and they uh, you know they assess her behavior, try to figure out her motives, and uh, so that so that the book the book has is real in a way. It's it's become real. I got to say, what's gratifying for me in the business, this is known as a clean segue, having access to you. Tim, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Larry. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast, Artful Periscope. We're going to take a short break. Coming up next in studio, Thomas Mayer. He was our first guest going way back, talking about the 50th anniversary of the making of The Godfather and the Long Island Connections, a look back. I'm Larry Davidson. We'll be right back. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope. Joining us in studio, he's back from the first episode ever from Newsday. Thomas Mayer, it's great to see you again. Larry, thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. So let's the latest endeavor. And I have it in front of me, so I'm going to read it so I don't make a mistake. Because my go-to program over the years was Godfather 1, Godfather 2, even Godfather 3. When nothing was going on New Year's Eve, I would put it on a watcher from start to finish. It's the type of movie that when it comes up on whatever cable channel it's on, I do not care wherever the movie is. It could be 10 minutes in. Right. It could be an hour and a half in. And I, and I know everything, but I still watch it. So your piece that you wrote captured my attention in the fanfare section of Newsday going back in February. It's titled The Godfather, The Long Island Connection, 50 Years Later, A Look Back How the Classic Was Made. So great job. Welcome back. Much. So Thank tell you. us about all, how this came about. Well, Larry, I made an offer that uh, <laughs> I couldn't re the editor of Newsday couldn't refuse. Um, but, uh, you know, I, you know, my my career has basically been as an investigative reporter for Newsday and the author of six or seven books. Um, but every so often I get to do a kind of a lark. And this I, I realized that the. Uh, the 50th anniversary of The Godfather was coming up, partly because I was I had done a book recently about the uh, mafia spies, it's called. Right. And uh, so it just um, there were a couple of things that were uh, touched upon in The Godfather. You know, The Godfather was written uh, by a fellow named Mario Puzo, who was a an author who lived in on Long Island. He 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 wrote the book first in America, and then he moved to Bayshore. And the movie itself uh, was made by the great Francis Ford Coppola, who is a graduate of Hofstra University. And so, for Newsday, what we did was a five thousand word piece, about eight pages in the newspaper, uh, about the New York connection 
things to The Godfather. And Coppola has made the point that New York, Long Island was almost a character in the movie right. itself. Right. Um, so we, we really delved in uh, and looked at uh, these two men from Long Island, essentially, uh, Puzo and Coppola, and how they worked together in really a, almost a miraculous way to create one of the great uh, movies of all time. It's interesting you say that because I came across this observation. I saw Power of the Dog. I really liked it. Other people hated it. And that's Jane Campion's film. And this is what she said in the article. The Godfather is the gold standard of presence, performance, and cinema compared to Citizen Kane for excellent excellence. That is way up there. I love Citizen Kane, by the way. These totally, totally different movies, Power of the Dog and The Godfather. But that really elevates that in terms of what this movie really represents to cinephiles. It is. You know, that would be a real tough decision, uh, which one was better between Citizen Kane and The Godfather. Undoubtedly, though, as we look back 50 years later at The Godfather, it had a huge impact on our culture. Uh, it somewhat romanticizes or, uh, organized crime. But Coppola would be, if he was sitting here with us, I think he would particularly say it was a family drama. It was the family that very much uh, caught his eye and the story, as he said, of, of almost an ancient type of story of a king with three sons right, and the right. matter of succession uh, in general. In fact, we see that uh, in that HBO series, uh, Succession, oh. with a king right, and his right. three children and what's going to happen there. So the, the impact of The Godfather on cinema, but on our culture at large, is can't be overestimated. Um, I think that... Uh, as a breakthrough film for Italian-Americans, too. I think it's very important. Yes, you know, before then, gangster films, uh, it was usually non-Italians who were, uh, who were uh, in those films. Edward G. Robinson, Robinson. and yeah. a number of other folks. In fact, just before The Godfather. I just, saw, was a film. I just watched again Key Largo on Eternal Classic <laughs> Movies. Classic. Right, right, with Humphrey Bogart. Oh, Bogart. And there was one just before The Godfather with Kirk Douglas. Coppola was hired partly because he was an Italian-American, uh, but also because uh, Coppola wanted to make sure that a lot of people in the cast, uh, Puzo himself, were Italian-Americans. So I think it really reflected in a lot of nuanced way the Italian-American experience. That is not to say that Italian-Americans are gangsters or anything like that, but I think it's really the broader story about immigration, about capitalism, about about trying to make it in America and uh, the fact that uh, the, the Corleones were involved in criminality. It's the unfortunate route. Most Italian-Americans, like most immigrants, are engaged in very uh, legitimate endeavors. But it, it really makes this film uh, even more tasty, I guess, the fact that it's gangsters and it adds those different dimensions to it. So I'm a baby boomer. So the people older than me, there are a lot more people younger than me. So for the baby boom generation that loved this film and our reaction to that, does the younger generation 
have a different look if they watch millennials and, and whatever the categories you're in. They watch the film and say, boy, was that politically incorrect? And the, the N word and this and that and how people are misogyny and everything else that may have gone on. So from my perspective, I understood the time and tenure for other people in different age groups, would they react differently today to watching the Godfather trilogy? Well, that's something that we really wanted to uh, address in the Newsday story. And, um, you know, starting with the first part of your question there, not only did we do a print story for Newsday, but I did a 12-minute documentary, kind of a mini documentary, about the making of the Godfather and the New York connections and such. And as part of that, we went to Hofstra University where... Uh, Coppola had attended school, but they also in their archives have a whole section about uh, Coppola and, uh, and what he was like as a young man and, and, and such following his career. We also interviewed people at Hofstra, young people. And it's interesting because I, the biggest surprise for me personally is I just because because I am a baby boomer, uh, the Godfather was such a big thing when it came out uh, that it's, it seems to be known by most baby boomers. I was surprised to find out that uh, many younger people, particularly w younger women, have not seen the film, although we certainly found a few who had. Um, I am the father of three sons who are in their 30s now or close to it, and uh, they have seen it uh, plenty of times, and their friends have. But um, I am surprised that there was a generational difference uh, with The Godfather. I mean, I guess 50 years later, uh, when you look at the film, there are things that do date that film. Right. Certainly, right. as you mentioned in the second part of your question about things that certainly would offend sensibilities, I think even back then, but certainly by today's standards, there's references to uh, to blacks uh, and that are, that is fairly, it is undoubtedly racist uh, in the comments by some drug lord at a meeting of various different dons of crime families. So there's a scene there, there is actually uh, some anti-Semitism in the, in in the film itself, uh, but also the portrayal of women um, as Mama Corleone, as the kind of stereotypical uh, wife who wouldn't say anything and uh, just uh, caters to the uh, the needs and the wants of the men in the family. I think it has been pointed out to me, though, that uh, the, the role of Connie uh, Corleone that was played by Coppola's sister, uh, Talia Shire. And very well played by the way. Really terrific. She is great uh, in that Rocky, film. Rocky, 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 Rocky. Right, exactly. She was terrific. And by, by the time you get to Godfather 3, uh, women have exerted themselves much more uh, than than the uh, the original Godfather one, um, and I think to some extent that does reflect our society during that time period, particularly in first and second generation immigrant families. So you know I think that's something that has been pointed out by others, and we try to address that as open eyed as as possible. You know it, it is a great work of art, but it certainly uh, has things that would be offensive to people, certainly by today's standards. So let's reset. This is the podcast, Artful Periscope. I'm Larry Davidson. My guest is a Newsday journalist and multi-time writer, author, producer of television programs, by the way, and you can touch upon that. Uh, 
because he did a great job with a series that was on Showtime's uh, Masters, Masters of, of Sex. Sex. Thank you. So I tried to explore with a lot of my guests, especially with crime fiction, and I say to them, I t I've had a conversation with Reed Farrell Coleman, who's also a Long Island-based writer, and I say, I know some of the scenes in the book, because a lot of the scenes take place on Long Island. You went past my house and one of your books and everything else. To what degree are places and settings also viable characters? And you kind of touched upon that, but this podcast comes, emanates from Long Island. So let's kind of talk about and explore scenes on Long Island that you are aware of that also can be described as characters in The Godfather. Very much so. I think in The Godfather, particularly Godfather 1, um, the, the role of Long Island is synonymous with the family, the family, Cor the Corleone mansion and such. And it's funny because in the novel, the Corleone home is based on Long Beach and it's based upon uh, uh, Puzo's novel, Mario Puzo's novel, uh, Mario it, he didn't know anything about the uh, about organized crime per se. It was really he researched everything, and and he, a lot of it was essentially the Godfather. The novel was a clip job by Puzo, but in the book. Uh, he very much makes several mentions to various different points on Long Island. And Long Island in general is the place where the weddings take place. Uh, at the very beginning of the film, there's the big wedding that takes place. And uh, Long Island represents family, all the drama of the family, whereas the place for organized crime, the business the cr of being a criminal fundamentally takes place in the city. And so the back and forth, if you think about it in that film between um, Long Island and the city uh, and the various different scenes, uh, there's a very stark difference. And Long Island is a character there. And, and, and uh, very characteristically, it's cars that, right. in, in which there's a lot of action that takes place in The Godfather. And there's nothing more Long Islandish than being in a car. That's the magical word, cars. And I'll tell you why. When I, when I was a student at Nassau Community College, they shot a scene there on campus with Marlon Brando driving a car because the movie was Reflections in a Golden Eye. Elizabeth Taylor was also in the movie. And one of the quintessential scenes in The Godfather is the killing of Sonny. And it's supposed to be the toll booth at Jones Beach. Right. Now, there are 147 squibs placed on his body. But correct me if I'm wrong. I believe that scene was shot at Mitchell Field, which is also the home of NASA Community College. Right, it is. Um, not much of it exists, but uh, uh, they did indeed find a number of different places on Long Island to f film The Godfather, and that certainly was one of them. Um, one of the other places that we visited was uh, a, a mansion known as Fillets, uh, uh, which was the home 
of the Guggenheims, uh, Alicia Patterson and Harry Guggenheim. Uh, and they were the founders of Newsday. And that's a beautiful mansion up in Sands Point. If you've never gone up there, you should. It's part of the Sands Point Preserve. And we filmed uh, the, the scene in which there's, it's the famous horse's head scene, right. in which a, a Hollywood producer who's not a willing to put in the uh, Godfather's favorite actor, who's a very much kind of like a Frank Sinatra character. Um, and he, uh, the producer does not, it refuses to put this character uh, into the, uh, Johnny Fontaine is the name of the character, into his movie and wakes up with a horse's head uh, in his bed with him after having shown that that horse, this prize-winning horse, at, at the stable. He shows it to the, the lawyer for Tom Hagen, the lawyer for The Godfather. And then when he refuses after a dinner, they uh, Hagen leaves in a huff and uh, shortly thereafter, we see this infamous, bloody horse's head scene. Can I ask you a question to interject? Sure. Was that a real horse's head in that bed? They actually it was. They got it from a meat factory where apparently there's um, some horse's meat that is fed, I guess, for dog food or whatever. And uh, Coppola definitely wanted a real horse's head. They filmed three different scenes up at Sands Point. One was in Fillets, which was a dining room that was made into the bedroom that I uh, mentioned. Um, there's also a dining room, it's our living room that was made into a dining room uh, that where, where uh, the scene with the producer and the lawyer for The Godfather is that it was filmed there. But we also went out to the stables uh, where uh, the horses were kept, and there was a scene that was filmed for The Godfather there. And uh, frankly, the, one of the few things that I really did not know uh, going into this that was kind of a sidebar was the Guggenheim uh, stables. Uh, the, this is, again, part of Harry Guggenheim's right. home. I did not know that Newsday's owner actually had a Kentucky Derby winner called Dark Star in 1954. So we kind of flashed that in our documentary. But we went to those same stables. They're still, they're still operated today. If I remember, Dark Star was an upset winner of the Kentucky Derby, 47 to 1, I don't know, I don't know that <laughs> right. but I remember that going back and I was very young. That was a major upset in the yeah. Kentucky Derby. 1954 it was. All right, yeah. going with that. Yeah. So we, we touched upon your book becoming uh, a movie called uh, Masters of Sex. Yes. Correct. Yes. So you understand casting. Yeah. How, how important was the casting of this movie? I'm going to mention a few names, and that's the big names. Marlon Brando, who nobody trusted because he was a wild card and everything else, and he can be very, very difficult. Um, James Caan, who was very interesting as an actor to this day. And Al Pacino and Robert De Niro. How did this cast come together? And I may have misspoke, misstate this, but I believe that De Niro was up for another role in Godfather 1 and he had to do another movie. And, and you talk about having Italian actors. One of the actors they looked at was Robert Redford and also Martin Sheen. So right. the movie would have liked there. Robert right. Redford, I love Robert Redford. Right. And he does great movies himself, by the way. But I can't see him in that role that De Niro got. Well, let's take him one at a time uh, with Redford. Actually, the novel 
uh, describes Michael Corleone closer to he was he, as taller and and, and as blonde. Right. Uh, you know, Northern Italians have right, blonde right. And, uh, and such. So um, so it's not as implausible as it seems. In the case of uh, Pacino. Um, Coppola had seen him in a play and thought he would be terrific. And he always thought that that would be uh, the right casting for Michael Corleone. And very, very intense as an actor. And they didn't really want, they, Paramount gave Coppola a lot of difficulty. Bear in mind, this was a movie that was shopped around to a couple of different directors. It was the number one novel for almost a year in the United States. It was a big, big, big novel. And uh, they, they, in giving it to Coppola, Coppola had done a couple of other films. He had shared in an Oscar for Patton. He wrote the screenplay oh, for that. George C. Scott, great but film. He was, he was a young Turk. And so they really, he was still very much untried. And, uh, but he he insisted on Pacino. Now, those those who have watched The Godfather, they may see uh, the Bronx scene. In fact, for our Newsday documentary, we went up to the restaurant up in the Bronx where they filmed a very important scene in The Godfather. It's when Michael Corleone, the son who The Godfather had hoped would be the really the legitimate one, the one, the one who uh, would be you know the senator and whatever that he talked about someday, and, and he winds up becoming the replacement for the Godfather. Well, that scene where that where that 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 change in Michael Corleone takes place is at this Bronx restaurant where uh, Michael, in retaliation for an assassination attempt on his father, uh, kills a crooked cop and another rival uh, mobster. And it's uh, it's a very, very dramatic scene. And Coppola thought he might be fired. And he thought and I, that I just a question. There's, a, there's a classic lines in that scene. Do you remember the lines? No, go ahead. Well, it's leave the gun, take right. the cannoli, right, which right. is still quoted in today that film, yeah. in that film. I didn't mean to interrupt, but yeah. that's, that's part of the scene that well, everybody that's also remembers. in a car. You know, it's amazing when you think about how many of these key scenes, the Bronx scene, they get in a car and then they go over the GW bridge and then they come back to what, you know, for those of us, I went to Ford and we, th uh, and we thought that Arthur Avenue was the place. And actually, uh, the actual restaurant is just a little bit uh, north of Arthur Avenue in the Bronx. But that scene that was filmed, it was shown to the heads of Paramount at a time period where they were really uncertain. It was very early on that they filmed that. And once they saw that scene, Pacino was a definite. There was no, there was no going back from that. In the case of Marlon Brando, they, uh, they Paramount also had a great skepticism about it. Um, and ironically, Marlon Brando, from I think the Dakotas or wherever, is one of the few non-Italians uh, in the major part, uh, few non-Italians in, in the cast, and. Um, but he really insisted on that. And Brando was tremendous in that film, needless to say. Um, I think as far as De Niro, now De Niro, of course, doesn't appear until part two of The Godfather. And he, he, he portrays the young Godfather in that film. Right. And in that film, in part two, if, if those who have seen the film, uh, the beginning starts with young Vito Corleone, uh, who is coming out 
essentially by himself on a boat ride, uh, and you see the Statue of Liberty and such. And that scene was very close to the heart of both Coppola and Puzo. It was beautifully filmed by Coppola, but it was much closer to Puzo's personal experience. Puzo's family were uh, were Italian Italian immigrants. In fact, some of his siblings were born in Italy. They lived in Hell's Kitchen, and it was really a hard scrabble existence for Puzo. Coppola comes from a very different Italian-American experience. His father was uh, was a very accomplished uh, musician who played in the NBC orchestra and uh, very well very well educated, very distinguished. And uh, so they, they, they come from very different socioeconomic uh, economic parts of the overall Italian-American experience. So what I want to do is I want to bring in my first guest to this conversation, if you don't mind. My first guest wrote the book called Hemingway's Widow. And it's a scene in the book, which we talked about in the first segment, where Mary Hemingway is sitting next to JFK, at a dinner. And of course, she spent a lot of years in Cuba. And this is after the Bay of Pigs happened. And she says to him, you know, these are wonderful people. And what happened with the Bay of Pigs? You got to take a different look at this because I understand it maybe better than you do. You wrote a book that we talked about. It's also quite interesting, if you don't mind talking about that. And that's from Mafia Spies, which kind of touches upon that time frame. Bay of Pigs, what's going on, and after the fact, uh, trying to assassinate Fidel Castro. Well, you know, we live in a time period right now where you see what's going on in the Ukraine and you see the freedom fighters fighting the Russians. And the Russians were a big part of mafia spies because Two things happen in their late 50s. Essentially, two satellites happen. One was Sputnik, and that scared the bejesus out of the, the American government. The fact that the Russians had a, 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 an object up in space. We didn't have anything up. This is way before the, uh, the flight to the moon and such, the moon uh, launches that we had. So the Russians were the first in space, but the other satellite was Cuba. It was a political satellite. And uh, a lot of people kind of cheered on Castro and thought he was a freedom fighter and thought he was a force for democracy. And he turned out very unfortunately to be a despot. Uh, very clearly, and he became a puppet of the Russians. And the Russians taught uh, Castro uh, essentially uh, how to set up a spy system. One of the big revelations in Mafia Spies is just how much Castro was not only able to set up a spy system in Cuba, but also in Florida. The essence of my book, Mafia Spies, is about two gangsters, Sam Giancana and Johnny Roselli, who were hired by the CIA to kill Castro. In other words, the, the U.S. government, having been humiliated uh, with the takeover of Cuba by Castro, and now that he was a communist, wanted to get rid of him, but they didn't want to get their hands dirty. And so they decided to reach out uh, first to Roselli, who was essentially the mob's guy in Hollywood and Las Vegas, right. and then to Giancana, who was 
his pal, Gene, uh, Gene Connor was the head of the of the crime family in Chicago, which was huge. I mean, we talk about we talk about the Godfather, and that in, in New York, there's five different families. In Chicago, it's one family. It's euphemistically called the outfit in Chicago. And Gian, uh, Al Capone was a big part of it. He was the head of that. Uh, there were other people, but then Sam Giancana. And so it's the story of these two very different men, two gangsters who are hired by the CIA to kill Castro. And what happens in that whole story is quite amazing. So your lovely wife is here. Yes. I'll invite you to come in because it gets me a chance to say hello. We use you about two years in between every, hello time, there, Joyce. every time I see her. But Joyce, it's wonderful to see you again. Mm -hmm. So I, met, I hope she's very proud of this. A little bird told me that you won the Columbia School of Journalism Alumni Award. So congratulations. Thank you very what much. What does that mean to you and your lovely wife? Oh, it meant a lot. You know, uh, we were... We, we were um, going out then in 1982, but we were not yet married. We got married in 84. You know, Columbia Journalism School is the great journalism school in the country. And to be uh, the winner of an alumni award 40 years after I graduated, I'll, I'll be getting it later this month, uh, is just a great honor. Uh, it means an immense amount to me personally. I'm the first one to go to college in my family. I went to St. Anthony's High School. I went to Fordham University. I worked for a couple of years. I didn't get in to Columbia the first time. I, I was on the waiting list and uh, and I reapplied. And you know, that, there's always an embarrassment where you say, oh, I didn't get in. Well, maybe I should just give up. Maybe I should, whatever. And uh, But I did get in and I did well. In fact, I won the documentary prize at, at Columbia Journalism School. We sold the documentary to Channel 13. I, I wound up getting a, an internship at the Chicago Sun-Times. I worked there for two years until Rupert Murdoch bought the paper. And then three of us from the Sun-Times came to Newsday. And I am in my 38th year at Newsday. Um, so it's been quite a ride, but that getting that alumni award to me is, uh, you know, just really terrific. It's something that it means a lot in a way that you can't express. Uh, but it's towards hopefully not the end of my career, but towards the, you know, the latter half of my career, I would assume. Uh, and it does reflect um, my work at Newsday, certainly, my investigative work at Newsday, the books that I've written, and also some of the television work that I've done for News 12 as well. We've won an Emmy recently for a documentary and such. So uh, it's kind of a three-legged stool, if you will, uh, in getting that award. So since you've been here, going way back to the first episode, we've added a new segment, and we've got two minutes left. And the segment is, What Did I Miss?, what did I get wrong? So oh. feel free to respond. What did I only miss? Only two minutes. <laughs> That's the first person said that. I love that. So, but you only get two minutes to hammer me, but feel free. Well, you, if you're talking about, um, you know, my wife Joyce is here. And uh, somebody recently asked me, uh, when you write the first draft of the book, how, how, how close is it to being uh, – 
the final product. I did a book about Dr. Benjamin Spock, yeah. and uh, he had an amazing life, a life almost like Forrest Gump. He's with, he's with JFK in this point. He's, he, there was talk about a third-party ticket in 1968 with Martin Luther King. Uh, he was certainly an opponent of the Vietnam War. He won the gold medal at the 1924 Olympics with the Yale crew team. But the thing that he's, Dr. Spock is best known for, obviously, is his baby book. And I I wrote this whole big biography of, of Spock's life, and my wife Joyce read it and said, "You know, you, you don't really have a chapter that that really delves into exactly what his famous baby book said." And I think there's that line in the Bible where uh, where Adam and Eve suddenly realized they were naked. That, in other words, that you realize, oh my God! Um, and I realized in that case that I had uh, had com- had really failed to address this book. So I wrote a whole new chapter and inserted it into the book and and remedied that. Um, Usually, I'd like to think I get it right. Uh, And I think I have a nose for for things in general, uh, anticipating where things are going to go and such. And I'm proud to say a lot of my books, uh, I think, do anticipate my book, uh, All That Glitters, deals with a, a lot of the crisis and the corruption within American media. And it, it's the rise of Donald Trump in that book. So I, I think that that book was written well before Trump. But, um, you know, I, I'm proud that that usually I do get it right, Larry. On this episode, two great storytellers, Timothy Christian talking about Mary Welsh Hemingway, Hemingway's widow and the great journalist Thomas Mayer talking about Godfather and a whole bunch of other things. Till next time, I'm Larry Davidson. Bye-bye. The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisafaro, sound editors and engineer, Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at LarryDavidsonsProductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. Yeah.